Good afternoon and welcome to the Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. Hudson Institute is a policy research organization dedicated to U.S. international leadership in partnership with our allies for a secure, free, and prosperous future. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome everyone here to a, a very timely panel discussion on Poland, NATO, and the future of Eastern European security. I've actually, by chance, just uh, returned from uh, Warsaw, where I was, uh, and it was in Poland this last week, where I took part in a, uh, a German Stiftung, Kerber Stiftung uh, workshop at the uh, Polish Foreign Ministry focused on European Union issues. The workshop, among others, featured Polish Foreign Minister Jacek uh, Szeputowicz and other officials from the Prime Minister's office and the Foreign Ministry, as well as Bundestag members, uh, member of the UK Parliament. And it was a, a very lively discussion, and I think we will have a rather lively discussion here this afternoon. Let me note how inspiring it is to see the transformation of Poland in our lifetimes from the place where literally the Warsaw Pact uh, came to be to uh, a bulwark of uh, NATO's defense in the east. And as we look at a revanchist Russia, we see Poland taking a critical lead in terms of uh, security issues, uh, in terms of its as a, as a US, close US ally, its arms purchases from the United States, including the significant purchase of Patriot missiles, Poland's recent uh, and dramatic request to host a heavy armored U.S. Uh, division and to pay $2 billion to host it, which is something very welcome uh, in this administration. Of course, Poland purchasing U.S. liquid natural gas, liquefied natural gas, and uh, given the critical importance of energy security for Poland and the region. To discuss these issues and others, we have an absolutely all-star panel. We have, uh, to begin with, uh, Anna Marie Anders, the Polish Undersecretary of State for International Dialogue. She has had a distinguished career in Poland as a, a senator representing the eastern flank of Poland. She is, of course, the daughter of the noted Polish general uh, from uh, World War II, uh, Władysław Anders, and she and her family has lived uh, Poland's history, which we'll be hearing about uh, firsthand. Uh, she, of course, grew up uh, in exile uh, in London and, in, and then in the United States, or lived later in the United States. Secondly, we have uh, Andrew Roberts, one of the greatest uh, living historians of our time, known for his brilliant works on Napoleon, Churchill, and Hitler, as well as his role as a media commentator, even for the recent royal wedding. Those of you tuned into NBC, you saw him. Um, we also have uh, John Fonte, senior fellow here at Hudson. John Fonte is well known as a leading critic of the threat that uh, progressive transnationalism poses to liberal democracy. He's the author of Sovereignty and Submission. And our discussion today is uh, moderated by none other than Hudson Distinguished Fellow Walter Russell Mead, the Dean of Observers of U.S. Foreign Policy, a man whose book, uh, Special Providence, How American Foreign Policy Changed the World, uh, is known for it's a typology of U.S. foreign policy, and particularly the Jacksonian foreign policy, Jacksonian worldview that uh, uh, President Trump uh, seems to subscribe to. Walter is also the Global View columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And if you have not yet read his column today, which all of his columns are must-reads, but this is an absolutely must-read, his uh, interview today with uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, which I urge all of you to read as soon as this panel is over. Without any further ado, let me turn it over to uh, Walter. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Ken, and thanks to our guests for, for coming. This is really an important subject at an important time. 
And Poland uh, uh, does play a significant role in the thinking of the Trump administration in American foreign policy this time. I should mention, for example, something that didn't get into the newspaper column. When I was speaking with Secretary Pompeo and was asking him uh, what should people be looking at for guidance about the thinking of the administration in foreign policy, he, he specifically singled out President Trump's speech in Warsaw as one of the things that, that very much guides their thinking. So um, that's an important speech. I understand uh, John will probably be referring to it in some way, uh, but it, it, rem it is a, a landmark, I think, for American strategic thought at this point in time. Poland has Poland and the United States have had a long history, even though for most of that history Poland wasn't independent. No country has had, I think, more sympathy from the United States more consistently than Poland. When Americans have always uh, favored Polish nationalism, Polish aspirations, <coughs> the carve-up of Poland by Prussia, Russia and Austria was, <coughs> excuse me, often taken by Americans as a sign of the worst kind of cynical old world diplomacy. Um, the in independence of Poland was a very non-controversial element of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points widely supported. But at the same time, that sympathy has has only translated at certain times into real support for Poland's aspirations. <coughs> and I think that remains a key to thinking about the future of Polish-U.S. relations is to what extent will this broad popular and elite sympathy for a country that Americans instinctively look to as a friend and an ally and a partner in shared values uh, will that translate into real support? At the end of the Cold War, I think we all hoped that Poland would, would be able to live as a normal country. Uh, but as time has gone by, the, the difficulties and the strategic fault lines that one sees in Central and Eastern Europe have begun to reemerge, and Poland's course looks less simple and less straightforward today than it did 30 years ago. I think this is a panel that is uniquely qualified to talk about that, and I'm looking forward to it. We're going to start with Andrew Roberts, <coughs> one of the liveliest historians and writers on uh, uh, world history around today. I understand that those of us who are inveterate fans don't have long to wait. I think November is when the next uh, installment on the Irv comes out. This will be a book on Winston Churchill. So I think Andrew Roberts on Winston <laughs> Churchill is something that few people will want to miss. Andrew? Do I get up or do I do? Whatever you like. I get up. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's a great honor to be invited to address you this afternoon. And thank you very much indeed for those kind words, Walter. Um, I sit on the board of three um, uh, think tanks, and I speak to them often, one can't automatically assume uh, that they're going to be, what's the right word, sane. 
Um, and the great thing about Hudson is that it is. It's, uh, it's sane and thoughtful, and, uh, and that's one of the best think tanks in the world. The statistic that you must remember about Poland, which explains so much about Polish psychology and about its assumptions in world affairs and geopolitics, um, stems from the Second World War. When the Italians lost 1.1% of their population in the Second World War, the French 1.9%, the Germans, who after all started it, 8.8%, the British 0.9%, and the Americans 0.3%, the Poles lost 17.2% of their population during that tragic conflict. And from that, one has to remember that this was not at all entirely down to the Nazis. They invaded on the 3rd of September 1939, but six weeks later, coming from the east, the Red Army attacked on the 18th of October. And this led to appalling tragedies for the Polish people, such as, of course, the uh, killing. We don't know still, historians don't know quite uh, how many, but something like 20,000 Polish officers were killed in the Katyn Forest and elsewhere in 1940. Um, Stalin was... Um, uh, incredibly cynical when he failed to allow the Allies to resupply the Warsaw Uprising of August uh, to October 1944. And then, of course, he set up the Lublin Poles, the puppet Polish government, um, which uh, set itself up as the, as the legitimate government. It never was. The, the true Polish people preferred the London government in exile. Um, but by the January 1947, entirely rigged elections, um, it was the Lublin polls that were uh, put in, uh, in place. And they and their successors, effectively men um, like uh, Jerek and Gomulka and uh, Rokozowski and um, uh, Jaruzelski, these men, some of them pretending at some stage to be, um, to be reformists, but all of them ultimately, under the thumb of Moscow, managed to run that country into the ground, uh, economically primarily, of course. They used all the ways that you usually get in uh, ultra-socialist and communist regimes. Nationalization, collectivization, three-year plans, five-year plans, uh, and other um, re refusing to take any martial aid, for example. Um, these kind of serious errors, one after the other, meant that by the early 1980s, that country, that proud and great country, Poland, was absolutely uh, run into the ground. It had some terrible moments. In 1953, the, um, the Krakow church was put up on show trial. In 1955, of course, uh, Warsaw was chosen for, as was mentioned earlier, the place where the Warsaw Pact was signed. But this extraordinary um, tale of woe began to come to an end in the late 1970s, when, in 1978, you had the election of Pope John Paul II, a Polish pope. Then, in 1980, the uh, foundation of the Solidarity Trade Union, based in Kadansk, uh, led by Lech Wałęsa, which um, showed that the, uh, the, the, the ice could crack. Um, there was martial law in 1981 through to 1982. And then in 1984, the horror of the uh, vicious murder of Father Jerzy Popleszku, which uh, infuriated the uh, Polish people. So by the time you got to 1989, when you also had a uh, brave American uh, president who was willing to face up to and face down communism, together you had this... Uh, this 
collection of um, events that led to the um, June 1989 legislative um, assembly vote, which effectively was the moment that communism fell in Poland. Before anything that ever happened in Russia, it, not, this was nothing to do with Mr. Gorbachev. This was to do with the Polish people showing the whole of the rest of Eastern Europe uh, what brave people could do. And this is the thing I'd like to, you to take away from this um, talk, that faced with appalling, against appalling odds, one thinks of the Polish uh, Second Corps under the command of, uh, of uh, General Wladyslaw Anders, um, the father of the, um, of the state senator that we have here today, um, uh, whose grave I've um, visited at Monte Cassino, uh, one of the great heroes of the Second World War, along with General Wladyslaw um, Sikorsky and others. Um, they, when faced with these terrible times, showed leadership, in me, as, a, as an Englishman, of course, I can't forget the Poles who fought in the RAF uh, during the Battle of Britain as well. And what they were able to do again and again at battles like Monte Cassino, where, uh, where Anders led um, uh, and which actually finally captured Monte Cassino, opened up the Liri Valley, allowed the Allies to capture, um, to capture Rome but at the loss of over 11,000 um, brave Poles killed and wounded. So you have to see a people who, have, who see the threat from the East, for whom it has led to uh, massive and severe blood loss, a people who um, show leadership again and again, but who are trapped in a tragic geographical position where in the 20th century, the two most vicious totalitarian powers of that century sought to crush them and to impose <coughs> a partition that was just as bad, nay, much, much worse than any of the three partitions that Walter mentioned from the 18th and the 19th centuries. So there you are. I've taken you up to the uh, Berlin Wall, and, uh, and now John will take you to the next stage. Thank you. John, take it away. When thinking about Poland, America, and the West, we should begin with President Trump's Warsaw speech, as was mentioned. Uh, the late Charles Krauthammer wrote, this is the best speech he's given. The editors of Wall Street Journal lauded the president for, quote, taking a clear stand against the kind of gauzy globalism and vague multiculturalism represented by the worldview of, say, uh, Barack Obama and most contemporary Western intellectuals. And that's the Wall Street Journal not Breitbart. At the core of the speech uh, is the Trump administration's answer to the question, what is the West? President Trump concluded his speech, our freedom, our civilization, and our survival depends upon the bonds of history, culture, and memory. We should fight like the Poles, for family, for freedom, for country, and for God. The concept of the West outlined at Warsaw is a more inclusive of one than the pinched, post-national, culturally barren, militantly secular West presented by others. Uh, the Trump version includes Christianity and Judaism and the classical Greco-Roman patrimony, as well as the Enlightenment and modernity. So it's not the Enlightenment only, it's the Enlightenment plus. For Trump and law and, order, <clears throat> and, law and justice, the West and Europe did not begin with the Treaty of Rome in 1957 
formation of the European community. Uh, and Jerusalem is as central to the West as Brussels. Repeatedly, both the Trump administration and the law and justice government have emphasized one very core Enlightenment principle, the principle of government by consent of the governed, or democratic sovereignty. Sovereignty is emerging as a major issue in 20th century world politics as it comes face to face with mass migration. Well, the president in his UN speech mentioned sovereignty over 20 times. But a critical question in the 21st century is going to be, uh, do free peoples have the right to determine their own immigration policy, or will this be determined for them by a supranational body, by the rules of transnational law, or by the migrants themselves arriving without the consent of the people? Who decides? Within the EU, the argument is between those who favor nation-state democracy, as did Margaret Thatcher and Charles de Gaulle, and those who want more centralized power in Brussels. Moving from civilizational issues to strategic cooperation, uh, bilateral po U.S.-Polish security issues, the picture is very positive, and Anna Maria, the next speaker, is going to go into some detail in this. Obviously, I just want to make a few points. Um, that U.S. and Poland stand together on most issues. Poland is obviously no friend of Putin or Russian machinations. Assistant Secretary of State Wes Mitchell noted that Poland is a vital ally because it's a frontline state. It stands on the crucial rimlands of Europe and Eurasia against the revisionist power of Russia. Um, Poland is one of five NATO countries that does actually meet its 2% uh, defense spending goal. And we'll hear more a little bit later uh, about the Nord Stream 2. Um, I did want to mention that on the economic front, Poland is one of the most attractive European nations for foreign investments. Clearly, the world's leading CEOs are not worried about the rule of law in Poland. At the UN, Poland votes closer to the United States than many of our Western European allies. Um, for example, on the motion condemning the United States for moving our embassy to Jerusalem, the Poles, unlike the Western Europeans, did not condemn uh, the U.S. move to Jerusalem. And way back in a vote in the European Parliament, when the European Parliament voted by 84 percent, 500 out of the 600 members of Parliament, to fix labels on goods produced by Jews in the West Bank, law and justice MEPs stood with the 16 percent of the European Parliament's parliamentarians who did not gang up in Israel. This was against the opposition of the entire left, uh, against the center-right European People's Party, and even uh, a large number of British MEPs. Now, the only problematic issue I can see between the U.S. and Poland is Poland's desire to be included in the U.S. Uh, visa waiver program, along with other, with some of the Western European countries. There is sort of a false narrative being, there is a, there's an elephant in the room I want to speak to briefly because I don't know if anybody else is, what I call the false narrative. Uh, as soon as law and justice was elected, democratically and overwhelmingly, the greatest uh, victory in, in, uh, in Polish history, um, there was no honeymoon period. The charge was, well, democracy is under threat. Does that sound familiar? No honeymoon. Uh, the false narrative, this false narrative of Poland has been picked up by many in the European Union establishment. There's been actions by the European Commission and so on, and by the ma mainstream Western media. They have two core arguments, that the government is undermining the independence of the judiciary and the media. Now, the judicial system was established during the roundtable discussions of 1989 at the end of the communist period, as we just heard. Uh, the discussions were between the reform communists and solidarity. The former communists have had an inordinate influence 
in establishing the critical constitutional tribunal, which determines <clears throat> what's constitutional, what isn't. <clears throat> so we've seen nepotism, favors for the children, the friends and the relatives of former communist nomenclatura, and corruption has followed for, for many years after that. <clears throat> On all of this, there's no complaints from the European Union or the European Commission. For example, the Constitutional Tribunal protected the post-communist status of quo. <laughs> um, they declared, the, the Constitutional Tribunal declared unconstitutional the transparency laws, illustration uh, that the previous law and justice government, 0507, carried out that would have opened the files of the communist security authorities. This was declared unconstitutional. Uh, there were no complaints from the European Union. In the past, the National Council of the Judiciary, composed mainly of sitting judges, nominate future judges. It would be as if the members of the current U.S. Supreme Court and the American Bar Association nominated future judges for the U.S. Court with only limited input from elected officials. The law and justice government is changing the system, making it more democratic, a larger role for elected officials. In most democracies, including the United States and Germany, democratically elected officials have a large say in the appointment of judges. Otherwise, we'd have an undemocratic judicial oligarchy. Well, overwhelmingly, 80% of the Polish people want to reform the judiciary. It's one of the main reasons law and justice was elected. Turning just briefly at the end here to the media criticisms, in the early period after the end of communism, the Polish state media was in the hands mostly of the Democratic Left Alliance, mostly former communists who ran the National Broadcasting Council. They made the decisions. When the centrist civic platform won the elections, they got put their supporters into the state media. When Law and Justice did this, not surprisingly, they're doing the same thing. This is usually what happens with state media in European countries. Private media, on the other hand, is mostly German-owned and is strongly anti-Law and Justice. In other words, there's plenty of media opposition to the current conservative government in Poland, just there is plenty of mainstream media opposition to any conservative government anywhere in the West, uh, from Israel to the United States. This is not an argument about the rule of law. It's an argument about policy, about democratic, conservative policy uh, that some in the EU and the Western media don't like. Thank you. Well, Anna Maria, would you care to, and you can so, so speak at the podium wherever you like. <laughs> Um, so uh, for me, it's unab I'm unable to talk on this subject without saying something about uh, my past, about where I came from. Um, Andrew uh, touched on the subject of my father, um, and that, I think, has uh, a great bearing on the way I look at Poland now and the threats um, that are facing Poland. Um, I was born in the United Kingdom uh, with an innate mistrust of Russia. My father had spent one and a half years in the prison in Russia. He saved the lives of over 120,000 people uh, that he took out of Siberia. Uh, so I was brought up as a little girl to know that you cannot trust Russia. And I think that feeling is uh, general in Poland for obvious, uh, obvious reasons. Um, Poland was talking about the dangers of Russia for many, many years uh, after the Cold War. I think the feeling in the West was, well, the Cold War is over, we can relax. 
uh, we could not relax, uh, but I think it took the annexation of Crimea in 2014 uh, for, for the world to wake up and see that Russia continued to be a threat. We in Poland see ourselves at the moment in a situation we are in the middle. We are with Russia on one side and Germany on the other side. Of course, we are not in war with Germany, uh, but we are in dispute with the European Union. Uh, with Russia, it is a slightly different situation. Um, I, as well as being Secretary of State responsible for international dialogue and the Chancellor of the Prime Minister, I'm also a senator in Poland. I never imagined that I was going to be a politician in Poland, uh, let alone at a time uh, which I think is so important for Poland. Not only am I a senator in Poland, but I am responsible for the northeastern flank. And the Subalki Gap that we are hearing so much about and have heard so much about is within my region. So, um, it recently we have heard discussions about propositions of a permanent base in Poland uh, <coughs> as opposed to a rotational force. Uh, arguments have been presented that, in fact, this would make sense, transportation within Poland being uh, an issue, um, has been one of the, the reasons. The other thing that we are faced with now is um, gas, natural gas, uh, Nord Stream 2, which has become a huge point of contention between the United States and the European Union. Um, in fact, it has divided up Europe as I imagine Putin would only desire. Um, what I would like to stress is that I, and many others, I and many others, um, I think, of my thinking, uh, will believe uh, that Putin has done an incredible job of dividing up Europe. Um, Brexit, um, I know that Russia was keen on the UK uh, leaving uh, the European Union. Um, Brexit has divided up the European Union, the pros and the cons. Uh, I, as somebody who sees the European Union from a British point of view, I'm not sure which way that's going to go. I don't live in the UK anymore. For a Polish point of view, it's, uh, it may be a problem because it may, you know, if we have to leave, uh, it's, uh, Poland has profited enough. Uh, so Brexit is one issue. Definitely energy is a huge issue. We have Nord Stream 2, which would present a pipe directly from Russia to Germany, bypassing Eastern Europe, and particularly bypassing the Ukraine. Uh, we see the tensions in Ukraine and Russia's involvement in Ukraine, and so we do not want to see that happening, and particularly we don't want to have another Russian-German alliance. President Trump is all for... A rather against the Nord Stream 2. Um, he, the, actually, even President Obama, when it was first introduced in 2015, was against Nord Stream 2. So the Trump administration and is against that. Um, on the other hand, you have Germany, who is for it, Austria, that's for it, Holland as well. Uh, <coughs> Poland is supported uh, by the Baltic states and, uh, and Denmark. So here we have another fraction. Uh, we have the question of um, LNG. We have a new terminal in Poland, in the north of, of Poland. 
uh, as being possibly very lucrative uh, positions for the United States. Uh, I mention all this because it is also important to understand that this is very beneficial not only to Poland but to Eastern Europe to decrease its dependence on, um, on gas on, uh, uh, from Russia. Uh, so we have the Baltic pipeline leading from Denmark to Poland, and we have the question of Nord Stream 2. Uh, so I think these are the issues that I would like to talk about today and discuss. Um, I think there are other factors in the world which make it even more of a stressful situation, but these are the ones that I would start with. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was very clear. <laughs> let, let me just ask you, Anne-Marie, while we have you here, um, if, uh, if you were speaking with President Trump, and what, would, what are the things that Poland most wants from the United States, and what is Poland prepared to do for the United States? Uh, well, I would say that um, Poland considers uh, the United States it's definitely its best friend. Uh, President Trump's visit to Poland was a huge success. Um, I think uh, his speech was wonderful, presented the history of Poland. Uh, Poland wants security from, from the United States. Uh, we are grateful for the NATO forces and the Polish forces that we have. Uh, but as I said before, we want something uh, a little bit more permanent because we still do not feel secure. And I think that's not just Poland, I think that's the whole of the Baltic states. Um, whether I think Poland would be prepared to do um, anything really to get that security, whether it's going to be a financial security, what else you know, do we have to offer? We, we would go hand in hand with the United States anyway. I think the danger, if I were gonna to speak to the President Trump, uh, I would be concerned about his potential meeting with Putin. Mm. And I would say, look, you know, uh, I was kind of drummed in by my father that, you know, the Russians can be extremely charming. My father had dealings with Stalin. Uh, and, you know, the fear is that President Putin will actually charm President Trump to giving something up. What could we give up? Well, what we're afraid of is we'll give up, we'll give up the uh, military um, advantage that we have at the moment in Poland. Mm. Well, this, John, this uh, might be a question for you coming out of this. We see Russia sort of figuring in many interesting and difficult ways in Polish thinking, American thinking. But I know when, when you hear some people talk about this new vision of a Christian West. Some people would add Moscow to that group of Jerusalem, Brussels, and so on. That, and that's certainly how Putin presents himself, is that Russia, oddly, in some ways, the rhetoric is not dissimilar from some of the rhetoric in Poland. Traditional values, Christianity, strong stand for these, against the cosmopolitan uh, post-nationalists. How do you kind of, can, can you make sense of that for us? Uh, yes, there's no doubt that uh, <clears throat> Putin has been doing this and somewhat effectively. Uh, <clears throat> I think he was particularly effective during the previous administration, uh, during the Obama administration, when the, uh, the U.S. State Department and uh, foreign policy apparatus was pushing essentially progressive social issues, uh, making it uh, very easy for, uh, for Putin to sound to be the champion of traditional values. Of course, he's not. This is phony. Uh, but now, I think with the change of government, I don't, I don't think this 
Uh, we're no longer have a State Department that's going to probably be put doing what, uh, pushing the, um, uh, <clears throat> let's say, progressive social policies uh, that's gone on the last couple of years. That, that, and is aligning itself more now with, with traditional forces. We, uh, but Russia will try to continue to make mischief, but that doesn't mean that the, uh, the move toward democratic sovereignty is, is any less legitimate. Uh, the move toward democratic sovereignty across Europe, we see it in election after election. I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the Austrian chancellor referring, I guess, inopportunely to the Berlin uh, yes. uh, Rome access. Uh, he said Berlin, he could have said Munich. Uh, Vienna, Rome, Munich, because it looks like uh, Munich looks like currently there's uh, there's a revival of democratic what I would call dem the revival of democratic sovereignty everywhere, even in Germany, certainly in Bavaria. Well, Andrew, um, uh, I know one question is with Britain leaving the European Union at least as of this week. That's what we're hearing. It's still going to be leaving the European Union. Um, how is that going to affect British-Polish relations and the British sort of view of, is its security still connected to Poland and the Baltic republics? I think one thing we've very much got to get clear is that on the 29th of March next year, Britain is going to be leaving the European Union. That is under no question whatsoever. Um, we have uh, the, the latest vote in Parliament. Every time there's a vote in Parliament, we have the, the left and the media uh, saying the, that there's a huge question mark over this. First of all, Mrs May always wins these votes in Parliament. And secondly, we've had 17,410,762 people voting for Brexit, <laughs> which is the largest number of people, including me, I hasten to add, uh, which is the largest <laughs> number of people that have ever voted for anything in the whole history of Britain. And if um, a, uh, a bunch of um, people in the newspapers and, uh, uh, and people who live in Planet Remain still um, want to try to, uh, to stop that, they're simply not going to be allowed to do so. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the will of the people. House of Lords has tried. Uh, any number of, um, of legal cases have tried. And they've all failed because of this sovereignty of the people issue. Um, so the question then, then is, with regard to Poland, uh, where we, of course, have um, hundreds of thousands of Polish people living in the uh, United Kingdom, is what effect is living and working, and working extremely hard, by the way. These are not... The great thing about the Poles is that they are not scroungers. They are people who, who really do uh, contribute to the United Kingdom. And, uh, and as a result... It, they will be um, taken care of in the same way that we expect British people to be taken care of who live in the European Union, of which there are billions. And so there is a straightforward deal to be done, and it seems to me that uh, that, that to all intents and purposes, has already been done. Uh, so that will not be a, 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 a problem for the people living, for the Poles living in Britain, where you might, if the... Um, uh, if the European Union genuinely was a security apparatus, if it really was as it tries to pretend to be, and indeed as it somehow weirdly got the Nobel Prize for being, uh, a, uh, a force for peace since 1945. Uh, first of all, it didn't come into existence until 1957, by, <laughs> by which time we had already, in 1949, in the April of 1949, created the genuine platform that genuinely underpins peace in the West and indeed in the world, which is NATO. 
And so long as Britain remains a, um, a uh, member of NATO, so long as Article 7 of NATO pertains, so long as um, the United States stays committed to NATO, and so long as Poland is in NATO, I see absolutely no trouble. So long as also some of these uh, smaller nations that feel under no threat whatsoever, like Luxembourg, which pays 0.9% of its GDP uh, for the, um, for the uh, right to stay in NATO, while you people are paying 5 plus percent. It is vital, and this is one area where Mr. Trump is right, that um, they pay more. They stump up properly. You can't have the Italians paying 1.1% of their GDP for getting the nuclear umbrella and everything else that they get. Um, as a result of being in NATO. But the Poles pay their 2%, which, by the way, isn't enough. I don't believe Britain should be only paying 2% either. But nonetheless, they're paying the, the bare minimum, as are we, and virtually nobody else <coughs> apart from the United States. <coughs> and so when we recognize that NATO is the thing that gives us security, not the European Union, if anything, the European Union has caused all sorts of trouble when it comes to security. Look at the um, Yugoslavian crisis. Um, if we accept that it's NATO that matters, then we will be all right. And in fact, Poland is now you know, paying 2%. We have a goal of uh, increasing that to 2.2 by 2020, uh, with the hope that it will be 2.5 by, by 2030. Very good. Very good. Um, what is the future of Europe? Because Poland is clearly part of Europe, and I've been hearing, you know, both from Andrew and John, some questioning of the model that, that Europeans are using in Brussels, the Brussels-based approach. What is a future of Europe that provides for both the liberty and the security of countries like Poland, whose future is really unimaginable without some kind of broader European structures? I think this is a huge problem. I think that the problem is that the Europeans can't ag agree on anything uh, at the moment. I mean, everything seems to be a point of contention, which is, I think, another reason why Poland is uh, concentrating even more on the United States, because, you know, you, you look back on 1939 and say, OK, at the time, nobody came to Poland's aid. Uh, can we trust them today? They're in disarray, and nobody can agree on anything. Uh, so uh, the future of Europe, well, the future of Europe, Europe is confronted with an awful lot of problems now. Uh, you know, we touched briefly on the migrant subject. I mean, that is one of the potential uh, downfalls of Europe. It's, uh, it's a huge uh, issue, and, and there are others, but um, who, can, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. But Europe is much more than the European Union. This is the thing that, uh, that Poles understand, that Britons understand, but the, the, the bureaucracy in Brussels does not understand. There is something that is ancient about Europe that goes, goes back centuries before the European Union and will last centuries after the European Union. And it is something worthwhile and it is an uh, addition to world civilization. However, to, to somehow mix that up, with a small group of unelected politicians in Brussels who uh, attempt to impose their, um, their policies on the whole of the rest of Europe, I think would be a cardinal error for us. And picking up on what uh, Andrew just said, uh, there's actually an intellectual manifesto that states exactly this. It's called the Paris Statement, a Europe we can believe in, uh, signed by leading, says exactly this, uh, um, 
It's signed by uh, leading uh, intellectuals such as Pierre Manon, of, uh, the French intellectual, Roger Scruton, many of you know, uh, Richard Legutko in Poland. Uh, they signed exactly this, saying that Europe is more than Brussels, it's Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem, it's the heritage of Christianity, uh, of the Hebrew Bible, and, and so on. So you, you can look it up, uh, Paris Statement, a Europe we can believe in. Um, as far as where Europe is headed, I, I think there is this resurgence of uh, nation-state democracy, uh, which is what, that was the vision that Charles de Gaulle had, uh, uh, Europe of nations, uh, certainly the vision of, of, uh, of Thatcher as well. And, you know, once upon a time, there was thing, this thing called the European community. Uh, was there something wrong with the stage that they reached during the European community when, remember, Helmut Kohl's Germany and uh, Francois Mitterrand's France, were they going to go to war? Uh, because there was no uh, more Europe or greater integrated Europe. There was a European community. There were some some power grabs by Brussels, the European Court of Justice, and some that could be adjusted. But by and large, uh, more power was in the hands of the nation states than after then with the establishment of the euro, which is proven to be not really not effective economically or politically, uh, and the Lisbon Treaty. So I see a... Um, a continuous movement, and it keeps moving west uh, from Poland and Hungary to to Austria to Italy, and and we see the uh, the French Gaullist party now um, saying similar things. Uh, so I see a movement and a resurgence of, of democratic nation state democracy. I think for Poland, I mean, we we talk a lot about the Russian side of the Polish diplomatic problem, but there's a German side too. <laughs> Uh, what is the situation now with Polish-German relations? Well, I think the, the problem with, uh, between Poland and Germany really is not so much Germany itself, but the, uh, but the European Union. The, the fact that uh, we have the impression, I think a lot of people have that impression, that uh, Angela Merkel made the decision of the migrants uh, unilaterally, uh, single-handedly almost, and now it's a question of uh, everybody, uh, well, doing what, uh, doing their bit. Uh, so this is a long story when it comes to Poland because they, you know, I don't want to go into at length uh, on the migrant issue, uh, but that is one of the uh, the question. The question. The I think, as Andrew said, I think it really is more the EU than uh, than, than Europe. I think we have, uh, and also what John said about the uh, inability for Poland really to portray like a positive narrative. I mean, sometimes we feel that we really are, are put upon. It started on the, the very beginning when uh, the Law and Justice Party won the election and there was all this resentment because nobody expected them to win. So the complaints went from Poland to the European Union and again, you know, it was, went on with the judicial system, the migrants, it goes on and on. Um, so I don't think it is essentially a Poland-German question because the actual relationship is not that bad. It's strained now because of outside factors, like I said, Nord Stream 2 and factors like that, and migration probably being the most important thing at this point. What is it that you feel that, say, the EU does not understand about the Law and Justice Party? Um, in this program. Well, I think that the tendency is that uh, to say that it's um, non-democratic, uh, 
the judicial system, uh, if you uh, compare the fact that President Obama was unable to uh, uh, select uh, a judge to the Supreme Court just before he went out of office because it was too late, uh, we had a similar situation in Poland where President Komorowski uh, selected judges to the court there, whereas we already had a president elected. We already had a president elect. Uh, so it's sort of like a, you know, a misunderstanding from the very beginning. Um, I think um, the other problem is that uh, people don't really understand that we still have leftovers from the communist system in Poland. It has not gone. You can see it. You can see it everywhere. You can see the influence of communists within Poland. And so a lot of the judicial system was still based around the old judges and the old, you know, the whole thing. So I think that's the main problem, that people just don't understand that what we want to do is not a question of being democratic. We just want to go ahead. We want to get rid of the, of the past. We want to go. Nobody talks about uh, the, and I always say in Poland, uh, positive narrative. I said, I would like to see something good about Poland on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times, mm -hmm. as opposed to having something good on page 10 and the bad stuff is always on the front, you know? And we aren't able to talk about the good things. What are the good things? Our economy is booming. We have a wonderful relationship with the United States. Um, the, even at the time when we had the problem with the so-called Holocaust bill at the beginning of this year, which is now finally getting itself sorted out, our relationship with Israel, our business relationship never waned. It was always, it was always good. There were two things. The problems were on the higher level. So I think we're unable to, to portray this. I think it is uh, what John said, um, the media. The media is against us. The general mainstream media is, is against Poland. I would like to see something positive written about Poland, which I hope will happen <laughs> after the session. <laughs> there is a connection between Poland and the Washington Post, but we won't get into that. Right. <laughs> Well, John, what would you, if you were to be talking to the editors of the Washington Post or the um, New York Times, what would you tell them would be some good news stories about Poland that they're missing? Well, this is a democratically elected government. It was elected, it was the, uh, uh, the greatest democratic victory in, in modern Polish history. Uh, and they ran on a reform, clean, uh, drain the swamp, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, a reform ticket, and that's attempting what they're attempting to do is to restore uh, uh, democracy to the judicial process. As Anna Maria said, these, uh, uh, it's hard to believe uh, that um, essentially elected officials had very little input in, uh, in, the, in the choice of judges. I mean, the only other, like Israel has this problem too, I guess, of the Supreme Court, where, this, where the judges choose their own judges, uh, pretty much, not 100%, there's some complications, but uh, so they're making, they're, this is a re-democratization, both in, in the question of uh, uh, the judiciary and the media, a government elected to follow certain policy. Otherwise, you have an oligarchy. You have a judicial oligarchy. I think that, uh, even some writers from the National Endowment for Democracy have talked about undemocratic liberalism. They talk about illiberal democracy, but the flip of that is undemocratic, uh, undemocratic liberalism, where you have uh, rule by, often by the courts uh, and um, a one-sided media, which you have, as uh, I say, throughout the West. 
Andrew, did you have anything to add before I take it off to the... Yes, I think, I think it's worthwhile also pointing out that um, Poland, because it ran a much more sensible um, banking and fiscal um, uh, setup prior to the great crash, actually escaped much of the um, problems, the, the financial problems of the great crash. Um, and, uh, and that was very um, forward-thinking and intelligent of, of their bankers. Uh, it didn't mean that it didn't uh, negatively affect Poland, because, of course, it negatively affected everyone in the West. But actually, when it comes to, um, to countries that survive the crash best, Poland was right up the top there. Unfortunately, it's not in the euro. Uh, and it has the other great ad advantage of, um, of that, of course. I think just before, you know, as you say, before we, we go ahead on to questions, um, I think the one thing that has very, been very apparent to me as somebody who has uh, traveled a lot since I started to, to work in Poland and the, I was elected at the beginning of 2016, um, the general ignorance about Poland. And, and I think it's improving. I was shocked the first time I came uh, to the United States and went to Congress, uh, I mean, not to the United States, but to the U.S. Congress um, as a politician, uh, about how little some of the questions the congressmen or the representatives or even the senators pose about Poland. And I think that has changed. Um, I have since been here uh, many times, and I think the attitude is generally sort of far more positive and far more, far more knowledgeable. Well, great. Uh, I gather Mark Zuckerberg had a similar experience. They didn't seem to know <laughs> yes. much about Facebook when he went to get questioned. <laughs> Uh, so Poland is not alone. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, all right, uh, we have a large audience today looking very interested. I would be happy to take your questions. Let me just ask you to identify yourself. Do we have people with microphones here? Yes, yes we do. So please, when I call on you, wait for someone with a <clears throat> microphone to come and then give your name and your affiliation if there is an affiliation. And your question, a question is normally a short statement that ends with a sort of rising intonation <laughs> of the voice <laughs> and would be punctuated by one of those squiggly things <laughs> that sometimes see. So questions, please, more than statements. Yes, we have one here. Can I get a microphone up? Thanks. I'm Stanley Kurtz from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So uh, Poland has some tensions with the EU, but it's also deeply skeptical of Russia. Uh, but um, there are other, other countries and parties in Europe that have tensions with the EU that seem a lot less skeptical of Russia. So how do you interact with them? How do you understand their view? What do you say to them when you interact with the other people pressing up against the EU? about your view of Russia compared to theirs? Um, I think that uh, the people who have a problem with the EU are the same, you know, with the EU, we, have, we all have basically the same issues. Um, I think that when the, um, you know, I was quite young when, uh, when we first joined, Britain joined the EU, I was living in London at the time, and I think the vision of the EU was very different then. It's become very, very bureaucratic. And, um, I think I'm not sure that how many people are aware of this, but when Timmerman said the other day that he was going to come to Poland or to, uh, and he's looking forward to meeting the Polish government in Moscow to discuss the problems, <laughs> this is uh, an issue. 
And then uh, a day later, Guy Bessonstadt said that um, Kaczynski, who was the head of the Law and Justice Party, uh, was uh, being funded by the Kremlin. Uh, that doesn't help. Uh, you know, and I think that uh, perhaps in Poland it's just a little bit more extreme, but I think basically Europe all feels the same way, that they are being boxed in into this bureaucratic mess that they are told exactly what they have to do. And I think that's really where the resentment comes. I wonder if anybody else in the panel wants to get into this question of the relationship between the Polish party that is critiquing the European Union and some of the populist parties in other European countries that are both critiquing the European Union in some of the same ways that the Poles are, but also supporting Putin and see those together. How does that all mix together? John, do you have any thoughts? Well, I think the main issue is that all of these parties, as Anna Maria said, is uh, that they like to rule themselves in their own policy. I mean, they may, uh, I don't see them some of them, I mean, they have, some of them have support from Putin, but that's not the major issue. The major issue is uh, what's going on in their own country, whether it's uh, in, in Austria or in Italy or in, in France, for that matter, with the, the Gaullist opposition. I mean, I think the, uh, the new leader of the, the Gaullist party is, is taking a slightly softer line on Russia, but uh, his main interest is, is French nationalism. So I, I don't, uh, I think this is exaggerated. I think it's used by, uh, by the EU, as Anna just said, um, we a French state who should know a lot better, obviously, Kaczynski is not funded by, by Putin. I mean, this is a schmear. So what you see is a lot of this is, is slanderous um, uh, toward Poland and toward some of the other countries. So I, I think the main, the main issue remains democratic sovereignty. Uh, Putin is somewhat of a, an issue that's used by the, as a stick to beat up on these, these folks who, who basically want government, um, government by consent of the governed. Okay. I have another question up here up front. Hey, Clay Fuller with the American Enterprise Institute. I'm a Gene Kirkpatrick Fellow in Foreign and Defense Policy Studies. <coughs> and my specialty, what I study, is a, a authoritarian influence campaigns. Um, so I, I really enjoy You the must be very busy these days. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed the panel. I thought you all had great things to say, and I really do hope there are some positive stories that come out uh, about Poland in the future. Um, but so my question, NATO deals with, with hard power issues, right? But these influence campaigns are soft power uh, issues. And I'm curious, uh, I'm sure you're well aware that in 1990 in Warsaw, they signed the Community of Democracies uh, group was, was formed. And I'm curious, the panel's thoughts on What's going on with that organization? If it's useful, it was it was a group of democratic countries that wanted to come together to sort of further the democratic peace theory. And um, I, it's my understanding it still exists. And so I'm wondering where where it goes with that. If it should be updated. If there's a different uh, way to approach that in order to form more soft power uh, ways to counter the sharp power of China, Russia, uh, and other non-democratic uh, authoritarian adversaries. Well, I have to confess I know nothing about it. I've never heard of it. <laughs> I mean, it's not, well, we could say it's not 1989 or 1990 anymore. I think a lot of the, um, uh, the situation has changed. John McCain brought it back up in the 2008 election as proposing the League of Democracies um, so it, as a way to reform the community of democracies. But so I guess this confirms it's not very active. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but it's a good. No, but that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. Well, it sounds like a good idea. Um, the uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. <laughs> so let's, let's not be too sure here. But yes, yeah. uh, good point. Um, yes, uh, sir, right over here, this gentleman. My question is about the efforts of the EU to impose... Sorry, could you identify... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Paul Mirengoff, Powerline. Uh, my, my question is about the efforts of the EU to impose or, or inflict, whatever the right word is, uh, a quota of um, immigrants from Middle Eastern countries uh, on Poland and the dispute that's arisen from that. How is that uh, dispute likely to be resolved? What are the consequences of having the dispute and what are the likely consequences of whatever resolution you think there's going to be? Um, we have had a lot of criticism about the fact that we have refused uh, to take migrants. Um, we stand by that. It, our views have not changed. But in order to understand Poland's situation, we have to appreciate that we have taken in over a million Ukrainians in the last year and a half, in two years, uh, who are fully integrated in our society. Furthermore, about a year ago, we passed a bill in Poland that will permit Polish people who were families of those who were deported from Poland to Soviet Russia uh, or Soviet, anywhere, who were Kazakhstan, we have people in Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, uh, uh, Uzbekistan, would permit them to come back. I mean, permit them, they could come back, but we actually have a government scheme that would support them coming back, help them getting jobs, uh, um, accommodation, education for those who want to come back. Poland is not a rich country, and what we have said all the time is that we don't want to appear as if we are unchristian, but we cannot afford to take more than we already have. The other thing, which is, I think, an innate uh, fear, not just Poland, but all of the Eastern Europe, is they spend so many years under communist rule that there is this fear that this is now going to be Islam, a Muslim, a Muslim religion, taking over Poland. And frankly, if you look at the photographs and you look at the pictures on TV, what is happening in my hometown, which is London, Paris, where I lived for five years, uh, it is frightening. In Poland, if you come to Poland, you can go anywhere, to any bar, any outdoor cafe, you're not going to have any problems. And that's the way the Polish people wanted to stay. We don't want another threat. We don't want to be, feel like we are you know, exposing ourselves to a danger. So all this together uh, colors our views. Um, so, you know, people have said, well, you can just take Christians and so on. You can't do that because most of these people arrive without documents. So you don't know where they come from. Um, so all in all, I mean, basic thing is we're not changing our minds. Uh, the Law and Justice Party is strictly against uh, taking, being allocated a certain number of refugees. Yeah, uh, yeah actually, I think that brought this up. This is going to be a major one of the major issues of the 21st century. Uh, mass migration to, uh, to the first world, and then what does the first world do? We see this in, in this uh, here as well in North America uh, and in Europe. And it's a core, it's a core, as I said in my talk, it's a core principle of, uh, of the Enlightenment. Government no, can, by consent, are people... I can add also, excuse me, is the fact that we are actually helping people on the spot. I mean, we have given funds to, uh, to refugee programs in Jordan, Syria, 
we are for helping people on the spot. And, and you know, frankly, I mean, the, my view generally is the fact that the world should do more to uh, encourage. My, the only solution is to prevent people from coming, whether it's to Italy or Greece or anywhere, to encourage programs to stop these people from coming. Because once they're there, this is a huge problem. Well, the whole issue boils down to two words. Who decides? Who decides who a free people can have within their body politics? Do the citizens themselves decide, or is it decided uh, outside of the citizenship body? I mean, that's, that's a crucial question. It's a crucial question here. It's a crucial question. It's not just Poland. We see um, many, many of the countries in Europe uh, share the same view, and even in Germany, the situation now is uh, the, the Germans themselves want control over the borders. I agree, and I think it's monstrous that uh, Brussels should be imposing quotas effectively on uh, on Eastern European nations, um, and uh, every it's part of the inherent right of a, of a sovereign nation to um, decide whether it wants its way of life to alter. Um, mass immigration does do that. Uh, there are any number of examples of that. And if a country doesn't want that to happen, then it has every right to say no. Yes, in the front. Uh, my name is Yela De Franceschi, and I work for Voice of America. Can you keep it closer? Yes. My name is Yela De Franceschi, and I work for Voice of America. After all the discussion that I've heard here, I have a question. How firmly is Poland anchored in the European Union? Can you see Poland at any point deciding, like Britain, to leave the uh, Union? Um, Poland has benefited an awful lot from the European Union, unquestionably. Uh, over the years. Um, so this is a, it's a point of contention. I mean, this is where everybody turns around and says, well, you know, you're part of the family, uh, so you've got to chip in. Um, but it's not just Poland. It's other, con other countries, too. I, we do chip in. We do contribute to the European Union. And some people who are, there are actually people, and generally Poles are, are, are for staying but there are some people in Poland who will argue that, in fact, we, you know, we contribute more than, than we get out. Um, we have a certain number of amount of funds uh, allocated till 2020, and, um, and that may be reduced. Um, I think a lot of countries feel um, uh, that they are being, um, as such, blackmailed by the European Union uh, right now if you don't do this, we will reduce the funds, which is uh, seen not just by Poland, but in, you know, it, we've seen Italy with the new government now uh, stopping the, the ships coming. It's like the huge pressure is that you've got to fit in. Um, so generally, I think uh, they did a survey, I think 80% of Poles want to stay with the European Union. There is a concern uh, that we would not be able to uh, sort of be on our own. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we love everything that the European Union wants us to do. I think it's worth also pointing yes. out from the British Please. aspect of this um, is that um, you know, Britain wants Poland to stay in the European Union. Poland is a voice for sanity in the European Union. It's something that um, it's always been against uh, closer integration. Um, but Poland was a communist uh, dictatorship only 20 years ago. It's entirely different. Uh, it's a much smaller economy than Great Britain's, which is the sixth largest economy in the world. Whereas Britain can leave the European Union, there are lots of other countries 
uh, smaller countries for which it would not be beneficial. However, there are some other countries, one thinks of Greece and, uh, and perhaps Italy and, uh, and Spain and Portugal, who under certain circumstances, when, when they lost their own uh, currency, are far worse off than they might have been had they not entered the euro. So it's, uh, it's each country is, has got a separate and different um, attitude towards this. And so just simply because Britain is leaving doesn't mean that other countries should, but equally, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't. Can, you wait, can we get the mic back if she wants to? saying that as a journalist I've been following the events in Europe for a very long time and it seems very wobbly now I mean yes maybe the populations in high percentages can't envision leaving the European Union but the problems that are accumulating and not being solved don't seem to build, build wealth for the, for the uh, project and the European Union doesn't have to remain more Europe more integration it can slow that down or even the bicycle can be reversed I don't I think this bicycle metaphor <laughs> uh, doesn't have to continue. Would you say that there's any chance that Poland will join the euro? Um, unlikely. Uh, unlikely. Uh, what I hear from our prime minister and people uh, sort of who are more powerful than myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I find that unlikely. hard to believe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it makes sense. It doesn't. It wouldn't make sense uh, to me. I think I've travelled enough and, and and lived in various parts of the world enough to realise that, in fact, um, you know, the fact that Britain didn't join the euro is is a good thing. Uh, the fact that Poland didn't join the euro is is a good thing. And uh, and the people who did join the euro when, uh, were are complaining that the prices went up and so on. So I think it's uh, not beneficial. So I would say in the short term, no. All right, we have another question way in the back here. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Satoru Nagao, the Hudson Institute, and I came from Japan. The, uh, what do you think about the uh, current uh, Russia-China close relationship is my question. Thank you very much for giving a chance. The Russia-China relationship. How do you oh. feel about that, as well? Which is very, <laughs> getting very close now. <laughs> that is a that is a tough question. That is a tough question. Um, uh, I think um, if Russia is difficult to read, I think China is even more difficult uh, to read. Um, I think um, actually, I'm going. I just had an. Uh, email from my office saying that the Chinese uh, uh, ambassador wants to come and see me in my office. Uh, so uh, when I go back to Poland, uh, we are keen on having a good business relationship for, with China. There is a, a huge potential there. Um, so I don't think, um, from I may be wrong, but I don't think that Poland is desperately concerned right now uh, about uh, you know, China and Russia together. Uh, okay. Separately, but not, you know, not together. Andrew, you've written a good deal on geopolitics. What's your sense of this Russia-China relationship and where it might be headed? I don't think that they have um, enough in common for it to be um, a really long-lasting thing. The thing that they primarily have in common is a, um, a rivalry with the United States. 
Mm. And if at any stage that uh, was to be um, to, to alter or, or be dislodged, then um, then uh, there'd be nothing to it. All right. No, I'll pass on that. I notice I'm favoring this side in questions. <laughs> this side has seemed kind of silent. Are there any questions over here? Well, then I'll go yeah, back. <laughs> yes. Is it the gentleman in the yellow shirt's been waiting a very long time. Uh, thank you. I'm Leon Weinschild, a member of the Foreign Service, retired. Considering what the speakers have seemed to agree on about Polish attitudes towards Russia and Putin, and also their strong agreement with the President of the United States, President Trump, I wonder how they feel about Trump's apparent hesitancy to criticize the authoritarian regime in, in Russia, uh, his suggestion that Russia be invited to to join the G7 again, make it the G8. What does the Polish government make of this attitude of Trump? How do they feel about it? I'm going to, you know, if Anna Maria would like to speak to that, she can, but I'm going to suggest it may be easier for some of our independent observers to comment on that. Andrew, do you want to? Well, speaking as a citizen of a country, indeed a subject of a country, uh, that um, where a Russian operative attempted to murder a uh, person in, in Salisbury uh, only a few months ago using a repulsive uh, nerve agent. I thought it was outrageous of your president to offer um, a, uh, a chance for Russia to get back onto the G G7, turning it into a G8, and so did almost all of my countrymen. I'd say actions speak louder than words. You can look at what the president has done in... In Syria, I think, he's, I think he himself said, well, we've killed more Russians than, uh, uh, than anybody, I guess any previous president probably in history I can think of. So yeah, the, it's clear in the national strategy document, which the president did write uh, the first two pages on, that, uh, uh, <clears throat> that the actions of the United States government in, in confronting them uh, have a lot more. I think what he was saying as far as uh, the G7 is that they should be part of uh, the you should talk to them at some level, which is what he did in North Korea, and that, um, and that seems to have, uh, at least at this point, seems to be working out. But I'd look at the actions uh, rather than every particular uh, speech. All right, and behind you, right behind the man in the yellow shirt. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, Bill Veal, I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. Uh, and I this is the retired Foreign Service <laughs> section here. <laughs> I wanted to uh, raise uh, the name of Mr. Macron and the notion that uh, what's wrong with the EU is that we need more of it and we need to reform it and make it better. I'd uh, appreciate the uh, reactions of uh, Sanders uh, to that as well as other members of the, uh, of the panel. How do, you, how do you view Monsieur Macron's uh, initiatives in Europe? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Macron, you know, won the election in France, uh, really touting Europe above all, uh, right? So um, I think we're really not surprised that he has since uh, been even more friendly with Angela Merkel, and and they are both together trying to bully everybody else. Um, Macron is. Uh, there was some hope when he became very friendly with President Trump that, in fact, something would change. But we see now that it really has not changed, and we're back to where he was. And um, France has been um, 
one of those countries that is supporting Germany on the uh, on Nord Stream 2. So that is another <coughs> um, another <coughs> that has grown, driven a wedge between um, Trump administration and uh, and and France. And uh, Macron is one of the people who have been most vocative um, about the um, about the migrant situation uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, hard to tell. I, don't, I think, I don't know, I get the feeling with Macron, it just kind of depends what, uh, which way the wind is going, you know. Um, it is what it is, you know. France has got a new president. Vive la France. <laughs> to follow up on that a little bit, I think um, uh, there's, there's talk of shifting European Union spending from the east to the south. Mm. Uh, how does Poland see that, and does Poland think you can fight it? Um, well, I think the question of fighting it to, to the south is really probably because of the, bring us back to the migrant situation, you know, because the countries that are the poorest countries in the EU are the southern countries, and, and those like Greece, or you have Italy, uh, which shouldn't be, but it is, or, or any, of, uh, any of those countries. So again, you come to the fact, well, you know, why? I mean, the funds have been diverted there to help something that we, we don't want. Um, so, not that happy about that. Yeah. Well, okay, yes, John. Uh, and then Andrew. Yeah, the get to the gentleman's question. Well, this just expands, Macron is expanding uh, the EU's democracy deficit, his proposal to uh, have a common budget um, fiscal policy, if you're taking away uh, from nation states uh, their ability to determine where they spend their tax dollars, that's a move away from representative democracy. So um, uh, the EU from the beginning has had a democracy deficit. It expands. This even uh, greatly expands that. So I, I see a very problematic, what uh, Macron is doing is very problematic. I think it's a little bit like the whole wealth distribution thing. We know how that went down. Uh, with uh, uh, at one point, so it's the same same as you were saying. Okay. When I Andrew. heard um, when I heard Emmanuel Macron's speech uh, about how important it was to, in your words, you got it absolutely right, to reform and energize the EU, I was reminded very much of Francois Hollande's promise to reform and and energize the EU, and that at the time when he made that reminded me of Sarkozy's plan to uh, reform and energize <laughs> the EU, which I'm sure reminded everybody of Chirac's plan. Uh, but, uh, I'm not old enough to remember. I see some I'm of the Francophiles in the room. I'm, I'm old enough to remember Mitterrand. Who, un who undoubtedly thought that it was a driving force <laughs> of, his, uh, of his administration to reform and to energize uh, the <laughs> European Union. I'm not old enough to remember Pompidou or de Gaulle, but I would bet you anything you like that they also made speeches that they were going to try to reform and energize this totally unreformable and totally unenergetic un organization. And you mentioned the defense, European defense, which would be a rival of NATO. I mean, they would take, they would essentially, where would the funds come from, what uh, the energy, time, money spent on a European uh, defense force would directly rival NATO. So it would be a negative thing. So the Franco-Polish relationship, which for a long time was kind of a pillar of European 
Well, well uh, ordered, no, Milan was way back. I mean, France, uh, France was very close to Poland. I, one of the first uh, languages I learned after Polish and English was French. My father was a Francophile. Everybody was anybody spoke uh, spoke French once upon a time. The only, sorry to interrupt you, the only foreigner to be mentioned in the Polish national anthem is Napoleon. Yeah. yeah. And um, my uh, father had a very close relationship with General de Gaulle. In fact, I have books in my library that are signed uh, <laughs> to by General de Gaulle. Uh, so it's different. But then France is, France is different. You know, France, well, uh, my view of the European Union anyway is, is it's, it's very difficult, very difficult to have so many nationalities, so many cultures. And, and really, I think it is a struggle between France and Germany as being the uh, who is going to lead the European Union because you still have the nationalism uh, in in Germany and you still have the nationalism in, in France. Okay, we have another question here. Uh, Michael Bishop, I'm the director of the National Churchill Librarian Center, where incidentally you can attend the launch of Andrew's book on November 5th. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> so, so you pick, yeah. Hurry, 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 while stocks last. <laughs> so you pick Guy Fawkes Day. <laughs> day. <laughs> I do have a, a Brexit-related question, mainly for Andrew, but for the other panelists as well. I wonder if you think uh, that Brexit might, in the long run, uh, threaten the, uh, uh, the European Union's long-term existence, or whether or not it might somehow strengthen it through the removal of a country that arguably never belonged in it in the first place? You know, it's not a, a primary um, reason for people to, um, for pe the British people to have voted to have got out. They, they weren't trying to destroy the European Union at all. They were just trying to get Britain out of what they saw as being a, uh, a sclerotic and uh, failing undemocratic institution. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if the French and the Germans want to, um, to be together, if they genuinely think that that's the reason that they haven't gone to war together uh, rather than NATO and all the other um, proper reasons, then that's totally up to them. There isn't a... Uh, we're often accused, Brexiteers are often accused of being uh, fanatically uh, devoted to the destruction of the European Union. That's not the case at all. All we want is for our own country to uh, regain its sovereignty. It's an example of national uh, self-assertion, which wouldn't have to come by leaving the EU. It also could come by changing the EU from within, moving back toward the nation states, as de Gaulle uh, originally suggested. Do you have a question in the, in the far back there? Maria Jutrewska, the Institute of World Politics. Uh, I would like to revert to the issue of uh, France and Germany um, being through some sort of rapprochement. Uh, do you think that France is calling for the creation of the European Union armed forces uh, expresses the wishes of Germany? And how Poland would see that configuration appearing on the European scene? Thank terrible, you. terrible. Um, we, we really don't want to have anything that is going to um, uh, interfere with NATO. Uh, I mean, there, there's just no way. 
And I think it brings me back to what I was saying before about people in the European, in Europe, the European Union or the Euro Parliament being unable to agree. I mean, I, I don't see a uh, European army. Uh, it's, it just seems to be a wonderful idea, but it's just not going to happen, uh, I don't think, uh, not in my lifetime. Um, and I think, you know, again, it brings us back to the question of mistrust, what happened in 1939. Could we really, uh, could we really rely on something like that to defend Poland if some, or any of the Baltic states if Russia were going to uh, be the aggressor? Yes, it's also a way of, of effectively cutting out the United States, and uh, that would be absolutely disastrous. I think that's its purpose. Basically. Yes, yeah. and it always has been. Back in, the, first, it, the idea first came up in 1954, and Churchill, who was Prime Minister at the time, called it a sludgy amalgam. And, uh, and the idea of a European army has come up again and again since then. It still is a sludgy amalgam. And so um, it's something that uh, is profoundly dangerous to the concept of NATO and something that should be fought against by NATO. Yeah, ah, yes. Here it is, the microphone. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Nika. I'm a student. Um, so my question is about... Where are you a student? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry? Where? Oh, we just graduated from UVA. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, so, Mr. Roberts, you said that NATO is uh, uh, kind of the agency that keeps peace in Europe, but we've seen in the Balkans uh, that NATO is actually a problem between the United States and Russia, that um, NATO getting involved in the Middle East or the Balkans, it actually creates problems rather than solving them because, as it was stated earlier, it's a hard power, not a soft power. So for Poland, is NATO really necessary for security? Do you really see Russia as an aggressive revisionist state that's going to come after Eastern Europe or the uh, Baltics? All right. Uh, he's asking the, the core of the question is, do you see Russia as an aggressive revisionist threat, state that's a threat to its neighbors in the Baltics and Poland? Well, yes, yes. I mean, it's... Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean... Um, the U.S. and NATO forces in 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 Poland is not just Poland; it's the whole it's the whole of the Baltic states. Uh, I mean, that's that is what I was saying before. Like with the Suwalki gap, uh, if you had Russia cutting that off, it really eventually means that it uh, it cuts off um, that part of the world from the rest of Europe. So the whole of the Balkan states is worried. I mean, Ukraine is right there. Kaliningrad, Donbass, the huge uh, build-up forces, they're not just close to, uh, to Poland, they're close to Estonia, Latvia, Latvia, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, how do you say Latvia? Latvia, Latvia. Latvia. Uh, so yes, everybody sees it, that, which is why any plan that po or hope that Poland may have for a permanent U.S. base in Poland is fully supported by all of the Balkan states. May I follow up? Sure. So, so even with Article 5, it's still a real threat to Poland that Russia will one day invade the Baltics or yeah. Poland? I know. Well, yes. If uh, Article 5 says if any of the NATO countries were to be attacked, right, the whole, uh, everybody, all, all members of NATO going to support it. Um, I don't think anybody wants uh, a world war, and it would essentially be a world war. Uh, so I think the idea is uh, let's 
the deterrent is better than, than risking it. So the more we do, the, more, the less there is a chance that this will happen. Um, I think we, we really have to... Um, I mean, if you don't... People who are against it will say, okay, if you have buildup of forces... Russia is going to think it's even more threatened. They may retaliate because they feel that, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of in a difficult situation. The same thing from Germany, you get the same thing. When we, when we talk about um, um, Germany and, uh, and Russia, Russia feels the same way. Uh, Germany will feel the same way. That too much of a buildup is, in fact, um, risky because it may go the other way. We don't think so. We think that, um, obviously, if, the, if Russia sees a build-up, a huge build-up, and, you know, I've heard different views. It's not that some people would say uh, that a base, just a permanent base would be good. Other, and I'm talking about military people who know more than, than I do. Um, a base would be good. <coughs> Other people will tell you um, that it's probably better to have them spread around. Other people will, have it, uh, will tell you that it's better maybe to have combat forces that would be ready to move. Uh, whatever it is, I think the pressure is um, that there should be more, that right now it's not quite enough. And what we hear in uh, that there are... There, is, there are signs of more aggression from Russia. There are more of a build-up of troops. Um, there is more. We also have cyber warfare to deal with, hybrid warfare to deal with. I think we'll see all this coming up in the NATO summit at the beginning of July. And I think uh, the NATO summit will really show the differences uh, in Europe. I think, you know, a journalist asked me this morning, do you see it being a success or a total failure? Uh, I'm hoping it's going to be a success, but I think it will come, bring to the fore the, the, the divisions that exist uh, uh, in Europe. There are a lot, I think it's important to remember there are large minorities, Russian-speaking uh, minorities, in some of the Baltic states, which um, can be their irredentism, can be easily used to destabilize these states from within, at which point the Russians would be uh, so-called invited in to restore order. That's the way it's happened uh, in the past. Um, he is, uh, Mr. Putin, is an absolute genius at this kind of, uh, of um, non-state-on-state -state warfare. And that's the way that he would try to destabilize the Baltics. All right. Well, we have had a terrific discussion. I know everybody would like to join me in thanking our panelists for excellent <laughs> presentations. Okay.